Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hey, everyone. Jeremy Scheinwald here with another episode of Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. For those new to our show, the show is produced by Venture for America, a fellowship program for enterprising recent college graduates to launch their careers as entrepreneurs and help revitalize American cities. After five weeks of training, VFA fellows spend two years in the trenches of a startup in an emerging U.S. city where they learn how to contribute to a high-growth business. Afterwards, VFA provides the mentorship, network, and resources fellows need to become entrepreneurs. To learn more about Venture for America and to support our work, or even to apply to become a fellow, you can visit www.ventureforamerica.org. I'm an entrepreneur myself. Check out missiondrivengroup.com, and I've been a supporter of VFA since its inception. I started as a board member and a mentor, and now I have, I've added the you know, passionate volunteer podcaster title as well. I love to share great stories, and today we really have one. Brad Hargraves has been an entrepreneur for quite some time. He started his first venture, Aloysius, an antique furniture reseller, while a student at Yale. When he graduated, he was immersed in Pick Teams, a venture-backed online gaming community which engaged teams at competing college campuses. And then he launched Free Awesome, which was acquired by publicly traded company MGT. Next, Brad, along with three co-founders, launched General Assembly, which in some ways was a harbinger of a new era in technology. GA started as a co-working space, but soon became a community where you could skill up and learn coding, design, and more online, or at campuses around the world. Students and venture capitalists loved GA. It raised over $100 million in VC money. Recently, Brad moved on and started Common, moving from co-working to co-living. Common has already raised $7.5 million and has opened two communities in Brooklyn. So before we start the, uh, the interview with Brad, I want, to, uh, I want to tell you a little bit of my, about my week that was. Um, I, I got back to my apartment one day, and I found a gift from, um, from Mac Weldon, uh, MacWeldon.com. They're the, uh, the, a premium men's basics brand. So think socks and shirts and underwear. And, and in this case, I got a, a fantastic blue sweatshirt. I picked it up, and it actually it, like, it felt fantastic. I put it on, it, it fit like a glove. Um, it, it created a bit of a predicament for me because I've been shedding uh, my wardrobe as of late, trying to become more minimalistic. Uh, so as I as I went out to walk my dogs wearing this uh, blue hoodie, I started to think of a solution, which was simply to to come home and get rid of something else in my apartment because I didn't want to give up this sweatshirt. So I went and found another old blue hoodie. Don't tell anyone. Uh, my wife's grandmother got it for me a couple of years ago. She doesn't listen to the show, so... You know, be, be between us. And I put it in the giveaway pile. I actually gave it away this morning. Um, and, uh, and now I have this, this fantastic blue hoodie that I've been wearing because it's beautiful in New York these days after the megastorm. Uh, I've been wearing it every morning to walk my dogs. Uh, you can see me walking around the, uh, the 70s and 80s in New York with my Mack Weldon sweatshirt. Um, it's the kind of company that I actually really like as someone who is, doesn't buy a lot of clothes. I don't take a lot of risks. And they've got a very generous return policy uh, where no questions asked. You can return anything you purchase. Uh, listeners to the show, uh, can get a 20% off um, 
You get 20% off at Mac Weldon uh, by using Build Things, all one word, at the Mac Weldon website. Again, that's Build Things. Maybe you're thinking about a Valentine's Day gift for someone in your life, or maybe you're just thinking like me, you need to replace uh, an old sweatshirt with something that is fantastic. So, check it out. And with that, um, I we now move to our interview with, uh, with the behooded uh, Brad Hargraves, a man wearing a hoodie himself. Uh, here we go. Welcome to Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Building things can be really hard, and entrepreneurship is often portrayed in the media as the sexy or even worse, easy career path. Through this series, we plan to pull back the curtain and tell the gritty stories of entrepreneurship. We're striving to create a relaxed environment where entrepreneurs feel free to tell their stories. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. Brad, thanks so much for being here. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. Yeah, I think I'm not sure I mentioned this in, in the intro, uh, but um, in fact, I did not mention this in the intro. But you are the uh, the spouse of Amanda Moskowitz, who is here. We got these back to back episodes, <laughs> and I want to thank her for for uh, for coaxing you to come on board. And uh, and we had a great interview with her last week, and I'm pretty sure they'll play back to back. Your first couple on the podcast, and right? our first couple on yes. the podcast, exactly. <laughs> so that's great. We're making a little, making a little history here. Uh, and I, so I got to, I've got to ask you the qu- the first question I asked her, um, and then we can compare and contrast your answers, uh, which is you know it's a it's a family of entrepreneurs, serial entrepreneurs. You know, two two serial entrepreneurs living under the same roof. I, I'm unable to stop talking about entrepreneurship with my wife, so I can only imagine if she had equal uh, right to equal airtime. Uh, so, can you ever shut it down? What's it like living two serial entrepreneurs together? You know, I I love it actually. I I, I wouldn't have it any other way. Having a partner who understands what I do and the challenges that are faced by an entrepreneur, and and vice versa, that that goes both ways. I think is a wonderful thing. I mean, you have to, you know, in one of our, I would say, one of the things we love to do is 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 bring some. Uh, interesting techniques from entrepreneurship home. And one of those is we do quarterly planning every single quarter. And uh, it's actually a wonderful thing. <laughs> and, and it kind of takes those annoying conversations that would otherwise, you know, pop up at dinner on date night, like, uh, oh, let's have this financial conversation. Let's talk about, uh, you know, some household thing and puts it in a designated place. And that's kind of a framework that we both have and, and we both understand. And I think as long as you're willing to experiment with kind of how you want to run your lives together, and as long as you come to it from a perspective of your partners and you're together in this, uh, I think it can work tremendously well. And, you know, we also have two awesome cats and... uh, you know they're uh, they're our favorites, so you know it works. I made a joke that she, as long as the cats don't go into any entrepreneurial ventures, then you guys are probably at like you're at a maximum until the cats start getting to ventures, and then it's like you've gone <laughs> over the top on that one. Well, I was uh, I was thinking of naming one of our cats as uh you know as our new new uh, new CTO, so uh, I'm not sure uh, not sure how that's going to fly, but. So at this point, you're you're best known uh, for General Assembly, which is like this juggernaut, raging success. And as I started to dig into your bio for the show, I found um, what I think was your earliest venture, which was Aloysius. A, am I pronouncing that correctly? I think that is correct. Aloysius. Good job. Yeah, an antique furniture reseller, which um, you started as a as a student at Yale. Um, like, 
it's I think you know connecting the dots um, you know like between them was tough for me but how did you how did you end up in the antique reselling <laughs> business and what did you learn during that 10 month stint yeah so it was you know really prior and since the most fun I've had and you know it totally ad hoc I was a sophomore in college I saw that Yale was selling a lot of its antique furniture, and this was actually a trend that you saw in many universities. This was back in 2004, 2005. A lot of universities were, you know, rich off their endowment proceeds, and they were renovating all their buildings. And you actually saw a lot of wonderful historic antique furniture uh, just kind of sitting in warehouses or, you know, being auctioned off for pennies on the dollar or going in the trash. And of started buying it and uh, would rent a U-Haul on uh, Thursday. Um, interestingly enough, actually started this business with Matt Brimer, who went on to be my co-founder of two more businesses, including General Assembly. Um, and this is kind of how we met. You know, he was a freshman, I was a sophomore. And, uh, you know, it was so much fun just, you know, skipping class on Thursday and Friday, rent a U-Haul, drive to... You know, some warehouse where they kept a bunch of awesome wooden furniture from the 1920s. And, uh, you know, we would buy a card catalog for 50 bucks. And, you know, card catalogs are these giant 400-pound wooden things back from the era of the Dewey Decimal System when you found books by looking up index cards in giant shelves that were called card catalogs. Right. And these were massive pieces. And, uh, and you know, we would buy one for, like, 50 bucks. And, you know, we'd sell it for two or three thousand dollars and you know that's a colossal amount of cash for a uh you know kid from south arkansas going to college so uh i had a huge amount of fun doing that and that really got me hooked and i haven't been able to do anything but start companies ever since so why, why stop doing that i mean it was only 10 months and you were <laughs> and you were a sophomore that well I, I think I, I believe eventually i we ran out of furniture okay um you know, because we've gone around, bought a bunch of stuff, and, uh, you know, we found that the stuff that really sold were, like, the really antique wooden pieces from the 1920s and 1930s. We may have done it longer than 10 months. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure exactly how long it went on. I mean, right. it wasn't exactly, like, a formal gig or anything. <laughs> right. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, I mean, we eventually just started getting into a lot of, like, 1960s and 1970s office furniture and realized that right. even if it had the Yale name on it, wasn't quite as marketable as right. uh, as you know the, the the card catalog from the 1920s. I feel like I should do like an hour long show just on Aloysius right now. You know, just we'll just skip General <laughs> Assembly, we'll skip Common. Uh, okay, so I, but you just said yourself that you know that that from that point forward it was like you know I'm that was it. I'm hooked. That, that was it. That's it. And, and you started um, you know pick teams and free awesome and then General Assembly and Common. You were an entrepreneur in residence, I think twice. Once at at, mm-hmm. uh, at Tipping Point, once at Maveron. Was this just something like, I mean, was Aloysius the 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 um, genesis of this for you? Were you like always the kid with ideas? Like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur growing up the way my brother was going to be a lawyer growing up always from the time he was like six. Well, you know, I I don't think I had a a, a great conception of what it meant to be an entrepreneur um, really before Aloysius, and it just kind of happened. Um, you know, I, I, I was I was actually talking to my to my mom about this over uh, you know uh, over over Christmas break, and she said, you know, I actually first saw it when I was uh, in high school and I was working in a research lab. I wanted to actually go into uh, go in, initially go into um, biotechnology, 
And uh, she was like, you know, you were way less interested in the outcomes of your research than you were in, like, the materials that you were using and, like, how those materials were manufactured and sourced and distributed. She was like, yeah, I kind of knew back then that uh, you were probably going in the entrepreneurial direction more so than the research one. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there there are some origins back there, but, you know, when I started the furniture business and, and, and worked in that and just had the time of my life, um, there was no going back. Was, was there entrepreneurship surrounding you growing up? Or were your parents no. entrepreneurs at all? No, no. Um, no, I, there was very little. I mean, entrepreneurship was not really a thing. I grew up in South Arkansas and uh, went to high school in northern Louisiana. And, uh, you know, there, there weren't many models of entrepreneurship. Um, you know, my grandfather had started an auto parts business, and I, I you know, um, have a huge amount of respect to him, for him and, and, and what he built. And I would say that's really, you know, was my only model of entrepreneurship. So how I got into this, like, venture-backed business, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I, 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 there are so many, you know, pick teams for you, awesome. I, I, I wish we had time to talk about all of them. But General Assembly, obviously, was just like this this, you know, just blew up. And I, my understanding is, like, when you, when you started, it was supposed to be shared space with some classes, and as opposed to, like, thousands of classes online and in person mm-hmm. with some shared space. Is, is that the case? That was totally the case. We really didn't even start General Assembly as a business off the bat. I mean, we started it as, hey, it's this cool community space, co-working hub. We're going to have some classes that are open to the public. We're going to democratize technology Education by just getting, you know, getting more out there, not any model or idea of scale. Um, and, you know, it's one of the reasons we, we kind of set it up as we did with, you know, we had, we had four co-founders of this thing because we weren't really thinking about it like a business. We weren't thinking about, okay, this is going to be our thing for the next, uh, you know, four to six years. And, you know, we really... It wasn't until we were up and running for a number of months and we saw that, you know, the co-working space was great. It was filled up and, you know, that was that. But the classes, you know, we were doing all kinds of interesting things, teaching programming, teaching marketing, teaching user experience design, things that you wouldn't find in a traditional classroom, certainly not back then in, in, you know, 2010, 2011. that we kind of looked at that and looked at the experiences the students were having and the stories the students would have when they came in and said, wow, I really can't get this anywhere. I wish my college experience, I wish my graduate school experience were like this. And we started realizing we were onto something. When we started seeing people string together, uh, you know, because back then we were just teaching single classes, you know, two hours in the evening type of thing. We started seeing people string together many classes and start like learning a discipline. We said, this is actually something we should do. This is this is the business. And so we decided to really turn it into a school, first and foremost. And so you met, yeah, you mentioned that there were four of you at the beginning. So and and that and that there was some fortuity or serendipity um, in in uh, in starting it. So what, I mean, what was the intention? Like, what what were you you know what were you, what were you intending to do with this you know yourself? Like, what was your role going to be oh, in this? It, it, there was no there was no role conception. <laughs> it was really just I ended up you know kind of running the education business sort of as 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 my initial role at GA. Um, but, you know, when we started it, it wasn't intended to be a business. It was just, hey, here, 
you know, we're four people, we'll come together, we'll get this thing up and running, it will be awesome, and it will raise our personal profiles, and then we'll go on and do our next thing. Right. And that was it. It was, it was, there, there was no plan for more than like six to 12 months of this, uh, but it went a different direction. A new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I, I listened to this this this, uh, this interview where you talked about <laughs> like this is like there are a lot of ups and downs. There's a lot of sideways, and I, I, I like <laughs> you referred to as sideways, and it's like you know the the. I, I think we have this tendency to only see, you know, the the end game, which is like General Assembly, the you know, hundred million dollars raised, the campuses around the world, all that type of stuff. But I mean, what what were some of the ups and downs? And I mean, what were some of the downs and sideways along the way? The ups we all know, I guess. Oh my God! Well, I think the you know, especially coming from the place of running the early days of the education business at General Assembly, you know, there, people see the course offerings we have today. And look at that as, as kind of the, you know, what General Assembly has always offered. But I think there were, you know, a number of things that, you know, we tried out and didn't work in order to get where we are today. I would say for the number of things that, for everything that worked, there were three things we tried that didn't work. And those range from just different formulations of similar things that we do teach so you know we offered a computer science for hackers course which i still like i think that was an amazing course but you know it it didn't really resonate with people it was designed to teach formal computer science to people who were self-taught programmers um we tried to teach game design which did not work multiple times uh we tried to teach sales um, which, you know, I think there's a current formulation of that, which, which, which is working, but, you know, did not work multiple times in the past. So for everything that we launched that worked, there were so many things that, that either didn't work or even worse kind of went sideways and piddled along for months until we finally killed it. Right. And then you know the I mean another thing that you that I that I, I saw that you said which I think really resonated with me which is you shouldn't you shouldn't believe that you're I think I'm paraphrasing here but you shouldn't believe as awful you're as awful as you feel when your business is down and you shouldn't believe you're as great as you feel when your business <laughs> is up and I I think we have this tendency as entrepreneurs to just be so emotionally connected I mean, it's impossible not to be emotionally connected but but to to believe that your business is your own personal identity as well right. like how did you how did you you know keep your feet on the ground and, uh, you know, to, as General Assembly just exploded. Well, uh, the phrase that I use is it's never as good as it seems, nor is it as bad. And I think that's applicable to your life as well as business. And I think as an entrepreneur, those two become so inextricably linked that they can be confused, that you end up judging yourself as your business. When your mm -hmm. business is not performing, you hate yourself. When your business is doing well, you think you're the best thing ever. And that's a really dangerous way to live your life for a lot of reasons. And I think one of the biggest differences between 22-year-old Brad 
as an entrepreneur and Brad today as an entrepreneur is I think I've just gotten a lot better at smoothing out those emotional ups and downs. Um, but does that come with success? Like, 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 how could you, someone listening to this today saying, I'm going to launch this thing and I'm not going to hate myself if this thing <laughs> is, you know, struggles for a, for a year or two. I mean, is it just, is it just well, not possible well, if, if you're just starting out with, with very little? The first technique that I use that really seemed to work for me is to focus on the worst case scenario. And it sounds very, very counterintuitive, but focus on the worst case scenario and get yourself mentally prepared for that and accept that and say, okay, what if this blows up and fails entirely and crashes into the ground and burns in a steaming pile of wreckage? You know, what am I going to do? Where does that leave me as a person? Well, let's look at my options. Let's see what I am. Let's, let's understand that. And I think, you know, I, I, I look at this and I say, every business is risky. Like starting a business is one of the riskiest things you can do, but being an entrepreneur as a career, I actually don't think is nearly as risky as people believe it is as, you know, I mean, I think there are, you know, especially for someone with technology or business skills, there are plenty of job opportunities out there that can provide a cushion and can provide a, a soft landing for someone. And, you know, frankly, that's one of the the, the criticisms that a lot of people make of you know entrepreneurship largely being the purview of people who already have skills and already have that cushion and one of the things we tried to change at general assembly is to you know open that door and open that window of skills to more people because when you think about the worst case scenario it's so much easier if if the worst case scenario is i'll be able to go out and get a job mm -hmm. and having that ability to have a soft landing actually makes it so much easier to manage your emotions and go through those incredibly tough periods that are inevitable as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. um, so I often give people advice who are thinking about starting a company as maybe your first step is not going out and starting that company, but developing some skills or developing some relationships that in that worst case scenario will give you a soft landing and give you some runway such that the worst case scenario is not i'm going to lose my apartment and be out on the street right right yeah i mean i, I think i think uh i don't want to take this too too far off off track here uh, but i think like once someone is an entrepreneur and they've just got to, it, it's working i don't know i mean for me at least even I, I you know when i have that down i get really you know despondent tough on myself whatever it is and then i'm like it's it's not a matter of finding another job it's like I have to start this thing over again and right. because I can't get another job. I don't right. fit anymore. In fact, Amanda and I were talking about. I think I think we dubbed it like the the happy misfit or something like that. And and uh, and how it's it's sort of like it, it's tough for an entrepreneur to go back into a really corporate environment. Oh, it, that's it the part absolutely that I think is, is terrifying is. to me personally. It um, absolutely is. Uh, a lot of entrepreneurs, and I think I'm probably falling in this camp, are uh, you know ruined in terms of getting another, getting another job just now not from a skills perspective but just from a mentality perspective and a you know way of thinking perspective but still it can be a useful mechanic in terms of balancing out the low periods 
Absolutely. No, I, I definitely hear you there. I mean, there, there is a future for you. Well, of course. <laughs> so, okay, one more quote from, uh, from, the, from the Brad Hargard's database here is, is uh, from your blog, actually, is, is learning from failure is hard. Learning from success is harder. So what did you learn from the success of, of GA that you could apply to, to your next venture, Common, which is really where I want to focus? Well, I, I actually, to go back to that, that quote, I actually, most of the big lessons I take from the General Assembly experience are not from the broad arc of success, but from the million little failures that happen during the journey. And that's really what I mean when I say it's it's hard to learn from failure, it's even harder to learn from success, is that actually the biggest learnings come from studying those little failures and saying what went wrong there, then looking at the next time I did it when it went well and saying let's contrast those two things and let's say let's contrast a and b and say what did i do better in b than in a um and it's still hard because you know you can never control for all the variables you can never say oh this is definitively why x y or z happened um but you look back on it a lot of comes back a lot of it comes back to people and pattern recognition it comes back to i didn't have the right people around me and I didn't see the pattern that was forming. And I think if you focus on the people around you and fo- focus on getting really good at pattern recognition, I think a lot of failures can be, if not avoided, at least lessened in severity. Because rather than waiting six weeks for a problem to come and smack you in the face, you can short circuit it two weeks in. <clears throat> so, a lot of looking back on the little failures at GA are you know, not saying, oh, why did I make that bad decision? But why did it take me six weeks to recognize that that was a bad decision and fix it? One, one last question about, about GA, which um, you know, I'm sure many of our, of our listeners would like dream of having a success like GA. How did you, what, how did you determine it was time to move on from you know, day-to-day operations at a, such an exciting company that had, had, had just you know, blossomed? It was extraordinarily difficult. It was made even more difficult by the fact that many of my best friends were my coworkers at General Assembly. I mean, you're in you're in something for so long, and you know you just develop a lot of relationships there. It becomes your family in many ways, and so it was an incredibly challenging decision to move on from General Assembly. That said, I didn't feel like my skill set and what I was doing was best matched to the needs that GA had. I mean, General Assembly is scaling this business. You know, it's the largest school teaching technology uh, and design in the United States and probably the world. And the type of person that is needed to take that from 15 campuses to, you know, 30 campuses and half a billion in revenue is very different than the person that's needed to take it from, you know, zero campuses to, to 15. And I just, I wasn't, because I wasn't incredibly well suited, both in terms of my mentality and in terms of my background and experience for leading that company, I really wasn't enjoying it. I was not, you know, when I kind of reached a point, I think, um, you know, maybe six months before I left where you know, I was just not enjoying waking up in the morning and going into work. Mm-hmm. And that was a weird feeling for me because I've had such a kind of free-floating entrepreneurial life that, you know, I've always really 
had a lot of fun and I've always loved waking up and doing what I did. And this was the first time that, you know, I was highly structured um, in my work day. Um, had at one point 200 plus direct, rep- not direct reports, but people in my team. And it was, uh, you know, that, that, that's a lot. And I'm sure I'll get there again at Common. Right. Um, you know, but the combination of having that um, and not being CEO and not having that final say was a, you know, it was a tough combination to wake up in the morning and go into go into work every day. Were you able to sort of keep it contained, or do you think like do you think people sort of had a sense that you were maybe a little a little frustrated? Like were they were they shocked when you said you know what hey I I think I decided it's time for me to move on? Or, or? There were there were a lot of people who were surprised. I think you know there were people who were close to me there who were not surprised. Right. Um, I was actually pretty diligent about not, uh, quite diligent about not talking to anyone about it before I had the conversation with, you know, my co-founder, a very good friend, and CEO, Jake. Um, and, you know, I, I, it was a really incredibly tough decision. And, you know, I still love the team there, love the people, love the company. Um, it just, I just wasn't enjoying it anymore. Right. And so you, you moved on. You went to, to Maveron, which is which is Howard Schultz's fund, I, I believe. Yeah. So Maveron was was the first capital into General Assembly. So they led our Series A. Jason Stouffer there was the partner who was on our board at General Assembly, and I became very close to him. Um, you know, since uh, they invested back in 2011, uh, Maveron was started by um, Dan Levitan and Howard Schultz, who uh, you know were obviously invo- you know heavily involved in startups and. I'm sorry, in Starbucks and uh, and taking it public. Right. And uh, it's a great group of people. They really understand the intersection of consumer and they're one of the few venture capital capital firms that actually love kind of offline businesses with an offline with a big consumer component um, and aren't afraid of offline, I should say. Um, so they were the first capital into General Assembly. And, uh, you know, when I decided I was going to leave GA, uh, Jason reached out to me and said, hey, you know, come hang out here for a few months, you know, come join us as, as an entrepreneur in residence. Um, we called it a venture partner. And so I spent a number of months there, um, you know, kind of end of 2014, beginning of 2015, um, you know, looking, thinking about ideas, certainly working on Common and working on the idea that became Common. Um, but a great group of people and they, they ended up... Uh, you know, leading Common Series A as well. When you when you left, when you joined Maveron, was it like I'm joining to explore Common, or was it like Common's one of many ideas, and I'll explore them, I'll kick the I'll, I'll kick the tires on it, and we'll just we'll see what happens. It was one of a few ideas I was working on. Um, you know, I've always been very interested in 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 the games business as well, and I was uh, right. you know I, I've always been like infatuated with the gaming business. I've never been able to figure it out as a business. Um, and I'm kind of terrified of it as a business for a lot of reasons. So didn't end up going in that direction. And also I thought Common was a far bigger consumer need. And, you know, I look at this and say I'm at a great place to be starting another business that makes a huge impact on society and uh, on, you know, on people and creates a better housing option for a large number of individuals. So I look at this and say, you know, I'm... I'm never going to have a better opportunity to start a company like Common. And I just couldn't get the problem out of my head. 
Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Smart People Should Build Things, the Venture for America podcast. I, you know, I find it interesting like with, when entrepreneurs move on and they consider various ideas and kind of you know kick the tires on several. And like I'm like this. I have an idea where it's like it's brilliant for two days, <laughs> and then maybe some of them last a couple of weeks, and then some of them maybe I write down and say, hey, you know, now's not the time, but you know, keep it in mind. I guess as you create your your list, your inventory, like what's what's your process? How do you know this is the one to really move on with? Sure. Well, I think you get. I look at it almost in the the inverse light. That is, you get fascinated not by ideas, but by problems. And once you have a problem in your head, it's much harder to say this problem is not worth solving. Like once you've recognized a problem and you've seen a pain point that people face, you can't really ignore that. Mm -hmm. It's there. It's going to stay there. You may come up with a lot of different business models and go-to-market strategies and tactics to tackle that problem, but the problem is constant. And one thing I did uh, that I I actually loved as a tactic um, was I I pushed myself to make a 10-slide deck every single week, specifically on this housing problem. Um, and each one was kind of a different business model approach to it. There was one that was, you know, more uh, equity and ownership focused. There was another one that was more focused on kind of a network of vacation properties. There was, there were, a, you know, probably half dozen different ideas over six weeks that I put down on a slide deck as I was thinking about and kind of honing in on the model that became common. And that was extraordinarily helpful and powerful because the the problem was there. It was just in a complex industry like real estate, it's not obvious how to tackle it from the beginning. And it seems like as soon as you launched Common, it was you know it was just oversubscribed, like 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 you know applications to to, to live there, investor interest. Let's start with the investor interest piece. Um, you know, I, I read that you were kind of like you know turning people away, which uh, which is you know you were oversubscribed. I think yeah. you raised seven and a half million dollars. Yes. Um, there was more money waiting for you, and and you and you rejected it, which I think is almost like a heresy in this current environment. Uh, you know, it's pretty it's it's pretty rare. Although I think it's becoming a little bit more of a known issue these days that like there are some problems with taking on too much money. Mm-hmm. But I mean, how did you how did you make that choice? What was your intent in sort of you know keeping $7.5 million is a lot of money, but you know, keeping it small in quotes, so to speak. Yeah, so turning people away was really hard, although you know, there's, there's, a, there's a saying about raising money that either you don't get the deal done or you're wildly oversubscribed. Uh, there's really no middle place. So you know, there was really no question in my mind that Maveron was going to, to lead the deal. I mean, they... You know, I've just because I've worked with Jason before, and he was, you know, incredibly influential on the growth of General Assembly, and you know, uh, so I didn't even shop the deal from that perspective. So they led; they put in the majority of the, uh, you know, seven point three five million, um, and then there after that, it was really just about okay, who else do I want in this round? Who is going to add value? Who has helped me in the past? So. 
you know, a number of people were general a smaller general assembly investors, um, and then there were a number of people from the real estate industry. Um, specifically, you know, we also have to raise money to uh, around buildings as well. So because we um, we don't purchase buildings into the into the operating company, but uh, we do set up um, special purpose entities to buy to buy buildings to then uh, work with Common. Um, so we also were raising money at the time into the real estate entity. So uh, you know, we had a number of people participate jointly in the operating company and the real estate company. But you know, it, it's we eventually just got to a point where I wanted to stop talking to investors and I wanted to build the company. And uh, you know, seven point three five seemed to be as good of a number as any. <laughs> so if, if part of the goal with Common is to be accessible, like how do you balance the tenant need for affordability with an investor's expectation of return? Or to put that differently, you had a lot of applications, like two hundred applications, more than 200 applications for 19 spots in Brooklyn, like you could have charged more, which is kind of like the, it's 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 like, again, kind of maybe a bit of a heresy in New York to be charging less for rent than 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 one would expect you, you could, um, you know, if, the, if, you know, how do you how do you sort of balance those those two things, um, you know, accessibility and and uh, and the need for return? Right. So, you know, I think we really made a decision around, I looked at it about sustainability. And you know, going back to that phrase of it's never as good as it seems, nor is it as bad. I didn't want to build a business model around doing what I would call overcharging for real estate just because we're hot and buzzy and there's a lot of press and we're getting a lot of interest from all corners you know i wanted to hit a price point that i thought was sustainable and you know if we weren't getting a lot of press and if we weren't getting a lot of uh media attention that you know we would still be able on the merits alone to go out and fill our homes with great people and so that we kind of chose the prices really based on hey let's put all this press to the side for a second and let's just say you know we are including utilities, we are including cleaning, you know, it is, you know, we do potluck dinners, we do regular meet and greets, you know, the members have actually since set up a book club and they do movie nights and it's, it's, it's part of, it's supposed to be a great community as well. And we wanted to be able to, you know, and really the only thing we select for when going through applications are, you know, people who want to be a part of the community, people who sincerely want that Know, togetherness and don't want to live in anonymity and we wanted to make sure that we weren't just filling the room with the highest bidder as opposed to people who really wanted to be a part of this home so let's talk about this, this the culture you're trying to create at common yeah. and you know, like how do you determine to talk about the diversity of the people who are, who are living in the now two common homes, both of whom are in, in Brooklyn, uh, both of which are in, are in Brooklyn. But how, how did you, how much thought went into like selecting the first cohort? Yeah, sure. So, so one thing we wanted to be very intentional about is not turning it into a hacker house or a founder house or, you know, there's a lot of very specific like, oh, we're doing this for the startup community. And we, we really did not want to go that route. And one of the reasons for that is, you know, one of the reasons I love living in New York City is because there's so many different people you meet. You really, and I think it's in some ways different than Silicon Valley or San Francisco in that way, where 
on the West Coast, many of the folks you meet are in the tech community. They're founders. Everybody's working on an app. Here you meet people from the fashion industry, from the advertising industry, from you you meet writers, you meet artists uh, all the time. And we wanted that diversity in our home as well. And, you know, so we really kind of threw this whole idea of a hacker house or a founder house kind of out the window and said, hey, this is for people who want to live life in community. And that was it. That was the really only uh, guideline we put down. So we ended up getting uh, a great mix of people, um, you know, from various age groups, uh, you know, genders, different communities, et cetera. So uh, we were really happy and really representative of New York as a whole, I would say. So I think uh, we were really happy with how it, uh, how it's come out so far. And I think we, it's, it's always going to be a journey to maintain that. And there's also, I mean, there's an, there's an intentionality in the design of not just, you know, how the, how the individual, um, you know, homes are structured, but also how they relate to each other. You and I were talking a little bit offline. I, I thought that was, you know, quite interesting the way, you know, I mean, what a, one some houses have one thing, some houses the other. Maybe give us a little yeah, bit of a window into how they're how they're structured and designed. Yeah, well, one of the one of the goals here is that you know every home is not a self enclosed bubble, but there are interactions between the different common homes. So we have two homes right now. Um, we will have a number of others uh, in a few months by the beginning of summer. Um, you know, one home is nineteen people, the other home is eleven people, and you know the first home has this big dining space um really great for kind of small dinners events things like that you know we have like a movie watching area um in the common space so outside of any of the units and the second home has a game room so there's you know a bunch of board games there's arcade games and part of the idea is like let's create things that will be a magnet for people from other homes to come to a given space and I think that's really powerful and creates these kind of serendipitous interactions between people, um, which I hope is a big part of what makes common what it is, is that you're not living in anonymity in a shiny glass tower, but you're living within a real community and a group of people. So Common has this defined set of values. You can see them on the site. It's you know, be present, keep evolving, stay curious, open the door. There, 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 there are a few others. What happens if, you know, if you've got a bad apple in there who's just like, these are not my values, and I don't know why they, they applied in the first place, but is there really any recourse you can have? Yeah, so we, we haven't run into that run into that problem yet, and I really think we'll have to deal with it on a case-by-case basis, and I think, you know, for a while we're still going to be small enough where, where it's possible to deal with it on a case-by-case basis. And obviously at General Assembly we had to deal with, uh, you know, bad apples in the, in the student community as well, and I think it's somewhat similar in that regard, that is, you have people uh, together for a large number of hours every day, um, where you know there can be tensions, there can be conflicts, small things get uh, get exaggerated. Um, fortunately, we have not had any problems yet. Um, it is inevitable in the fullness of time that we will. And you know, I look at this as you can't overly plan for those things. Every case is so unique, and what you really have to do is empower everyone in the organization to take action and come to a good solution when that happens. I mean, fortunately, we have, you know, more homes coming online. And, you know, at some point, we probably will have to split a group of roommates up. Um, and when it comes to it, we'll do that. We're now two common homes. Is the plan to, to, to dominate Crown Heights? Because they're, they're 
they're 10 minutes away in Crown Heights? Or, you know, are there big expansion plans? Like, uh, I'm thinking about uh, about GA cities now, so like Singapore, uh, you know, are we going to see common uh, Singapore sometime soon? Yeah, so I would say we're certainly expanding, um, certainly beyond have our initial neighborhoods in, in Brooklyn. You know, one of the value propositions and reasons that people join Common is this idea of, you know, you can move between open rooms within Common at 24 hours notice. Um, and really, since it's all furnished, you just need a suitcase to move. So, you know, obviously that's not a big value proposition and it's not a meaningful reason now because we only have two homes and they're both in the same neighborhood. But as we start adding homes in other cities and even in other neighborhoods in New York, I think that's going to be a bigger and bigger reason why people join us. If you look at how the nature of work has changed, uh, especially over the last five to ten years, you know, people don't have linear careers in the same way they used to, where they're living in the same city for, you know, decades at a time. People are switching between, you know, gigs, between formal and informal education, um, between startups, between freelance opportunities, between uh, full-time work. And, you know, what that has led to is, is a need for a type of housing that is a little bit more flexible. So we're absolutely going to be going to be growing. You know, we obviously love Crown Heights and our members love Crown Heights. Um, but you're going to see us opening in, in, in other neighborhoods as well. I know we're just at the early stages right now, but you know how are, how do you how how are you going to define success at Common? You know, it's I think if we can make a, a meaningful impact on the way people live and open up a new type of housing that doesn't really look like anything that's on the market today, and we can create a viable alternative to the traditional lease that get someone into a more flexible, more community-driven situation that makes living easier, that makes work easier, that makes meeting people easier, I think that is going to be a huge win and a huge success. And you can always already look at the membership. Um, and they already see this as a substantively different and better offering than anything that's out there today. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg in terms of, you know, how much value we can create and how much better we can make people's lives by offering this new housing opportunity. Okay, last thing here, you've got a, your personal, <coughs> pardon me, your personal website, bhargraves.com. Uh, that's H-A-R-G-R-E-A-V-E-S, uh, in case yes. anyone's trying to figure out how to spell <laughs> it, uh, .com. And you describe yourself in four ways. Um, entrepreneur, gamer, you already talked about the, yes. the passion for gaming, which is abiding, and, and uh, you've had some entrepreneurial ventures in that area. <laughs> Yaley, and Teller. And Teller caught my eye as a man who, as in, you know, in the podcast game, I, I love good stories. Um, it said, Teller, people say I have good stories. Ask me to tell you one. So... I want you to take us out on a good story. Oh my God! Uh, well, uh, well, let me let me take us back home and back to the back to the top. Um, so when I was at Yale, um, I was part of a small group of people that would, uh, you know, I was very fascinated with history. I've always loved history. Been uh, been a bit of a history buff. Um, I was part of a small group of people that loved, you know, the history that was on campus and loved like the weird secret rooms you could find and, uh, you know 
finding some awesome way to get onto the roof of a building and things like that. And, you know, it, it, I don't know, borderline, uh, borderline trespassing, but you know, uh, it was, it was, it was really, really fun. And I had it, had a great time doing that. And, uh, one day I was a sophomore and a new guy joined the, uh, joined one of, uh, one of our explorations and where I, I forget what we're trying to do. I think we were trying to break into something in the library. Um, and you know, we started talking about how, uh, Yale was selling its card catalogs. And that guy who, uh, you know, we went on a lot of different random roofs and random tours um, was Matt Brimer. And hmm. he went on, we went on to, 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 found, uh, to found three companies. So uh, just a little, bit of, a little bit of color to take us back to the top. Great. That's awesome. I, 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 now I've got this visual of you, you know, <laughs> sne- like me walking in through the, the Yale library and you like just kind of like slipping through, like like you coming out from, from like beneath a, a bookshelf or something like that. Like I remember it's there. Amazing. I'm, I'm going to be looking for you if I ever It's amazing Yale. the hidden stuff that's there. It, it, some of the hidden things you can find. What can you find? Give me one, one crazy thing you found. Oh my God. Uh, there was one room where they were hiding brains in jars. Oh my God. Um, these were brains from like the, ni- the 19, some, some, some scientist had gone off the deep end or something and, and uh and he was keeping brains in jars and I just uh, started the interview with I this i thought this was uh i thought it was it was totally totally crazy and it was you know you almost passed out because you would you know it was in the sub basement and uh you know you would reek of formaldehyde when you came out and it, it was right, when you came out strange. inevitably being chased by frankenstein yeah totally and yeah. there were there were there were brains like a lot of brains in a lot of jars and unbelievable uh, you know eventually actually i think it was two years ago um some some press came out about this room um, and it was so strangely vindicating that, like, that was not hallucination. That, that room actually did exist. Uh, and, and you can, it's a, just, I'm sure if you Google Yale brain room, uh, you'll, you'll find some stuff about the place. So we think that it, it may no longer exist because of that press? It definitely it? does not okay. exist anymore because of that press. They actually evidently, I think, took the brains out and now keep them in, uh, put them in the museum or something. That's insane. But there was a room full of brains, yeah, and t- it's a very strange thing to find. You tell a good story. I mean, you know, just like it says <laughs> on your website. Thanks so much for being here, Brad. It's been a great Maybe, guest. Thank you, thank you so much. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.